the pages of the Old Testament, that's that first big fat bit of your, your Bible that you've either got in your hands or uh, uh, virtually on your mobile phones, contains some of the most amazing stories that you'll ever read. And if you, if you haven't read them, I thoroughly recommend dipping in and out of the Old Testament uh, and finding some of those amazing stories. You'll know them all. I mean, you'll know them. Maybe if you've not read the Bible, you'll know the story of Noah. You'll know the story of the whale, won't you? Yeah? Yes? Okay, that's great, because I was worried then, because there's lots of blank looks on your face. Noah, who's that? Um, all right, and, and I th- what you'll find when you read it, you'll find that a lot of the stories hang around this uh, young shepherd boy who grew up to be a king. Who, what was his name? King David, all right, and he was probably one of the greatest kings that Israel uh, would ever know, but he didn't become great all on his own, did he? No, he didn't. He depended on God, fully depended on God, and David has his moments as well. Some of his stories, he has his moments. He's not a perfect human being, but his heart is after God. That's what's important about, about David. I, one of the many things that's important about David, but his heart was fully for God. Um, but he also relied, actually, on 30 special soldiers uh, for much of his military might. Okay? And, and within, within, these are called David's mighty men, if you, if you weren't aware of that. Uh, and they, they accomplished some really, really cool stuff. Um, but within that 30, he had three uh, people that formed his like, inner circle. It's funny, isn't it, that, that, that King David had three people that formed his inner circle... And who else might we think of that had three people that formed an almost an inner circle? Jesus and three of his disciples formed an inner... Just an interesting way of connecting those two things. Anyway, the names of these guys... Let's not put that back up. Or close the door, maybe. All right, so the three names of these guys were Jeshubim, Eleazar, and Shema. Jeshubim, Eleazar, and Shema. Uh, Jeshubim... He was the chief of the captains in David's army. Uh, and he was famous, if you read the story, he's famous for slaying 800 enemy soldiers at one time. 800 enemy soldiers at one time. The other thing you'll find out about the Old Testament, it's quite good at hyper, hyperbole. Okay, but there's something significant about that. Something significant about him, them stressing how amazing he was. Because in the eyes of the Old Testament, he was really, really heroic. Shema, and get this one, Shema risked his life to defend a, f- a field of lentils and barley. Would you do that? <laughs> defend a field of lentils and barley? Why would he do that? Well, the land, this is what's important, the land belonged to God. And it was given to Israel to use for their glory. So to defend the land, he's not defending just the lentils and the barley. He's defending the land to honour God. That's what he's doing. To honour God and the, the covenant or the, 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 the promise that God had with Israel. And then the third guy, Eleazar, well he was from a, a, something called the tribe of Benjamin. And he fought side by side with David uh, against the Philistines. And we read that while the rest of the Israelite army was retreating in one story, he and David stood alone uh, and stood their ground. And the Bible actually says, why do you do this? Do this. Hold your fist really, really, really tight. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. Keep holding it. Really tight. I mean, really, really, really. So you, your, your knuckles are going white. Can you see them going white? Now, now just kind of let go, but don't open. Just, it doesn't want to move, does it? It's kind of in that shape. Is that just me? Have I got weird muscles or are you like that as well? Well, the Bible says that Eleazar 
fought until his sword was welded to his hand. Now, have you ever clung on to something for dear life? I've clung on to a roller coaster for dear life. And my knuckles have gone, have gone you know, white and, and your hands feel a bit weird afterwards. And you realise how you've been holding it. You don't quite realise how you've been holding it. Well, that's what Eliezer was when he was clinging to his sword. He was not letting go. Something was keeping him holding that. And his hands were going, his knuckles were going white. God honoured the faith and the courage of Eleazar and David by giving them a great victory. In it. And if you imagine this victory, it's, it's two men against an entire battalion. Yet they were victorious. So it sounds like it, it takes a very special person, doesn't it? To be one of, of David's mighty men. One of his mightiest of warriors. And the thing is, God wants each one of us to be mighty in his kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, Chloe, as followers of Jesus, and all those that gave their lives to God recently, you are very special to him. You are his, we are his special people. So let's read a story concerning these three mighty men. So if you want to turn to 2 Samuel 23, if you haven't got a Bible, we can, let us know, after, let us know afterwards, we can get you a Bible. Um, I'm going to read it out, so it doesn't matter. But if it, those of you who have, turn to 2 Samuel 23, verse 13 onwards. 2 Samuel 23, verse 13 onwards. As a church, we do believe it's good that you do open your Bible and you do read along if you can and if you're able. There are many, many, many different translations of Scripture uh, because uh, the language that we're translating from uh, is a language that is, some would argue, is much more complex than the, the, the English language. Um, and so you need a number of translations to reflect a lot of what they're trying to say in Scripture. Okay, so I'm going to read 2 Samuel 23 from verse 13. Jurist harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors, excuse me, broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of these three mighty warriors. So it's easy, isn't it, to imagine these uh, the, these fierce, fearless exploits and, and, and to think they're so unlike our lives. I mean, how many, how many Philistine garrisons have you broken through to go to the shop lately? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? How many caves have you found yourself held up in gasping for water? And um, it, yeah, on a practical level, we, we, we can't imagine that. We, 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 we're not there. But let me talk about these men, because I don't think they were chosen by David or thought highly of throughout Israel because of their physicality or, or even how awesome they were with a sword. Jashubim was brave, and he was willing to step out and do what needed to be done, but backed up with training and wisdom. Now that doesn't sound like something we can't do, does it? Or can't be? In Shema's case, it was his loyalty to God that caused him to risk his life in the defense of a, a simple field. Or maybe for me and you now, to defend God in, in certain arenas, in certain places. What makes Eliezer, Eliezer, 
Eleazar's story so powerful is that he stood his ground beside his king. And he showed that he was loyal and brave. So I think there's more to learn from these heroic men. What was it that made them so mighty? And then what is it that makes a, God, a person mighty in God's kingdom today? What, what makes you and me as believers mighty in God's kingdom today? Well, let me do three things. So the first one is they were close. Okay, they were close. They were close enough to hear David's whispered words. Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, I don't imagine David was saying this in some dramatic Shakespearean fashion. You know, like we sometimes hear translators when they're reading out the Bible. And so let me, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the gates of Bethlehem. I don't think he said it like that. I also don't think he said it as a suggestive statement. So we're sat on the sofa. It's late at night and we're watching a TV program. It's coming to an end and it's nearly bedtime. And I hear this little voice go, oh, we didn't put the bins out. Oh, if only we'd put the, the bins out. You want me to put the bins out? Oh, would you? So I don't think it was a suggestive statement. I don't think it was, I don't think it was, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the gates of Bethlehem. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. So let me give a little context to, to this story, okay? We've got David hiding in a cave near Bethlehem, which suggests, if you know your, thing, you know your stuff, that this event took shortly, placed place shortly after he was made a king in Hebron, and after the, the Philistines had searched for him to, to attack him. You can find that in 2 Samuel. And, and it was probably harvest time, so there, there has been little or no rain. And no water was available in this cave. And, and, and David thirsted. So he was dreaming. He was thirsting for this water from the well at Bethlehem. And he was thinking back maybe to, to when he was a boy and, and, and just how, how, how lovely the water tasted. And those, those memories, those, those innocent memories. And, and, and maybe, maybe he's got his back against this wall of this cave. And he's got his eyes closed. And he's recalling these memories of childhood. And, 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 and he just says, oh, that, that I could have some water. Oh, from the well near the gates of Bethlehem. Maybe, maybe he was just murmuring to himself as he, as he recalls. You ever done that? You ever kind of even started speaking memories aloud from, you know, way back when? Because this text to me, text to me anyway, suggests that, that David was speaking to himself about the water and, and that he never issued any direct orders to go get some. But these three guys, these fellas, they were close enough to David to hear his whisper and to know his desires. What an example, I think, for us to follow in our relationship with the king of our salvation. To be so close, you hear his whispers. If we want to be mighty men and women in the kingdom of God, then we need to be close enough to our king to know his desires and to hear his words. 
Christians who are constantly the most effective soldiers of Christ are the ones, I believe, who desire to form the closest personal relationship they possibly can with Jesus. Whatever it takes. God's greatest desire is to be known. In the book of Hosea, in the Bible, it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And, and actually, I like the way that this is put in the message version of the Bible. Uh, it says this, I'm after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God, not to go to more prayer meetings. Paul, who is a significant writer in the New Testament, said that he gave everything up in life and considered it rubbish in the view of surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Everything else was rubbish compared to wanting to get to know Jesus better. It challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges us. So if we follow the example of this mighty, these mighty men, these three men, then we'll count everything a loss. In other words, everything else should fall away if it prevents us from knowing God as our first priority. God wants us to develop a close and intimate relationship with him. Everything else should just fall away if it gets in the way of getting to know Jesus Christ more. So how do we do that then? How, how do we go about that? And let me encourage you with a few suggestions. And the first one is pretty simple, but it's oh so easy to neglect. And that is prayer. We talked about prayer quite a bit this morning. Prayer, I've heard someone say, is the key to the morning and the bolt to the evening. And too many of us, I think, too many of us, not in this room necessarily, but too many of us as Christians have allowed our prayer lives to dwindle down to just praying at mealtimes. And maybe not even then. One of the shortest verses in the Bible is this. Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? How do you pray without ceasing? Like, you get a dry mouth, I would imagine, after a while. All right, how about this? When you wake up, how about the first thing to come out of your mouth is, thank you, Jesus. You've woken up. You're blessed. Thank you, Jesus. On your way to work, during your lunch break, on the way home, before dinner, at your bedside, and every spare moment in between can be spent in conversation with God. We grow closer by communicating, don't we? Who's married in this room? Okay. Um, So that means you probably spend a lot of time with your partner. Imagine how weird it would be if you didn't speak. Like, you didn't communicate in any format, you just lived in that that wouldn't strengthen your relationship now, would it? Communication is the key to any relationship. And so communication is the key to our relationship with Jesus. Now listen, for me, my prayer life isn't actually much about standing in with a bunch of friends or a prayer meeting, although those things are very, very good. But actually, my prayer life is a simple conversation with my Father God as I go about my business. It's, it's talking to him like whenever I, I, I think of him and remember him and get into the habit of, of, you know, I don't get on my knees and do a these and thou's prayer. I just say, oh, do you know what, Jesus? Thank you so much. So, for example, uh, while, you, while Kathy was at Cherish, uh, I took the boys into town one day and Noah lost his bag. It had his Kindle in it, had his few other bits and bobs in it, and he put it down somewhere and lost it and thought he'd put it down on a stone slab outside uh, a shop, and then we went back there, it was gone. Now, we visited a few shops, and so we just prayed. And just, you know, we were sad, disappointed, but we prayed. 
uh, went back into, uh, went into Waterstones, one of the shops that we'd been in, and they said, oh, no, we haven't got it, we can't find it. And then I got a call yesterday from uh, a, a debit card company, because my son has one of those little prepaid debit cards. So we got a call from Waterstones to say they've got your bag. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That was simple, wasn't it? <laughs> so we didn't get round in a circle, didn't organise people to come round for 7.30pm, because that's Jesus' time. 10.30 a.m., 7.30 p.m. It's when Jesus speaks. We go, thank you, Lord, for the bag. We couldn't have lived our lives without the bag. It's going to be weird now. All hail the bag. No. Um, we didn't do that. Just, we just said, oh, wow, boys. Who do we say thank you to? Jesus. Bless Watchstones. Bless Go Henry, the company that, that found our bag. Those guys that went out of their way to do something a little bit unusual to, to, to put that bag to one side. It's easy, isn't it? Here's another thing. Worship continually. How do you do that? Yeah, look, I know that our lives should be an example of continual worship, but how about we don't over-spiritualise it and we just start knocking out those tunes? <laughs> put a, a, I was going to say put a CD on, but I don't really do that anymore. Um, <laughs> Stream worship songs. Put a CD on if you do. You know, it's said. It's said that those about those who walk around with a tune in their head and a song on their lips are the happiest people in the world. You don't have to have a good voice to sing praises to God. You, you really don't. The, the sad thing is that maybe some of our brothers and sisters in the faith, and again, not in this room, but in the wider thing, only sing when they've got a songbook in their hands or words on a projection screen, and even then they do it quietly to blend in. But I want, to, I want you to consider this. In the Bible, it talks about making a joyful noise. <laughs> I think the key thing of that is noise. Just, just do something. Make a noise. If you want to blow the shofar, you can. But don't do it often. No. It's... <laughs> great. Anyway, you don't know what I'm talking about, half of you, but there we are. I've just got it out there. It's fine now. Um, Making a joyful noise is something that brings pleasure to God and usually brings a smile to your own face. Do you disagree? No. I think this helps our relationship with God grow. And look, when I'm leading worship sometimes on a Sunday morning, there are, there are some, some mornings, I'll admit, I might not feel like worshipping and making a joyful noise. <gasps> it's true. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Because like you, I'm not perfect. And, and like you who've got small children or young children, they cannot always wake up in absolutely the best mood. And then you might not wake up in the best mood and things happen and it's a lot of rubbish and then you get to church and go, hey, how are you doing everyone? It's really great to see you. Oh. Um, so sometimes I don't feel like that. But, but, but what I... What I, what I yeah, I mean, yeah, sometimes I'd quite like to just do the sitting with my eyes closed and pretend I'm being all spiritual and connecting my spirit to his. Oh, I'm just so spiritual right now. I've even put my little fingers together in a weird meditative thing. Look how spiritual I am. And while I'm not saying that isn't good, because it, it is, it, that can be good to sit and meditate and to think and, and what have you. I actually read a lot more in scripture about getting up, getting on my feet and making some noise. And, and so while I may feel like sitting, I choose to actually get up and dance and sing and be joyful. Why? Because ultimately my worship isn't about me, it's about him. Your worship isn't about you, it's about him. 
So do what it do what it do what it takes to make some joyful noise and worship Him. Can I get an amen? Amen. Awesome. That was a good noise. And, and something wonderful happens when, when we sing praises to him. The music, I think music cuts through nonsense and it helps us engage with him on a completely different level. Oh, so here's, here's my final encouragement on how to get close to God, right? Listen carefully. And God gave us one mouth, two eyes and two ears for a reason. Okay, we, we, we can't know God's mind or will or desires unless we open his word, his Bible, and we look for it. Someone once said, if you carry the Bible when you're young, it will carry you when you're old. And there's truth in that. It's through his word that God reveals his will, his plan for our lives, and indeed himself. But it's through our ears that we remember that we're created to listen. To listen to the Holy Spirit as he whispers things of God to us. So we pray and we sing, but we give God time to speak back to us. It's not much of a conversation, is it, if the traffic is all one way? So as we're talking and we're giving thanks and we're praying, we're listening back for God's voice. That's communication. The other one's just talking at you. All right? So anyone who's got an honest desire to be a mighty servant of God, we must first draw close enough to him that we know his desires and we hear his words. So what else have we learned from these? What else can we learn from these three mighty men? Well, here's number two. They were committed. That's a dangerous word in the 21st century, committed. I get that. Uh, but, but they were committed. And they were committed enough to date David's wish as a command. It says in Scripture, So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Their service to their king wasn't just lip service. They, they didn't even need a command, actually. They didn't even have to be told. They didn't even need any encouragement. They just... They were just aware that the king wanted something and they were willing to do whatever it took to get it. They were so committed and enthusiastic in their service to David that they immediately jumped to their feet and they marched off into battle. His wish wish really was their command. Um, And today I think... Okay, I'm going to talk about something here which is a bit raw, I think, particularly what happened last night. But I've argued with myself for the last two or three days, do I say this bit? But I think it's right that I do. So today, God's kingdom desperately needs Christians with that sort of commitment and zeal. Confucius, that famous Chinese philosopher, said, wherever you go, go with your whole heart. It's good, isn't it? Bit of wisdom from something that's not in the Bible. There's wisdom to be gleaned from loads of other different places. It's good to read. The attitude that we see displayed here, and... I'm sure that some people who who witnessed that behaviour of these mighty men might have called them fanatics or even extremists. But it didn't hamper them one bit. And here's the line that I've been debating about. I think think we must be willing to risk being called religious fanatics. But let me put it within a context. Because I know that that term is a negative one. And with all the religiously-based terrorism forming the backbone of nearly all the recent atrocities that, that we've had in, in our land in recent weeks. But here's the thing. I am a fan. I'm a fanatic. I'm a fan. I'm a massive fan of Jesus Christ. Um, and the world deems, if it deems me religious for being that way, then that's fine. 
Because in a way then, I am a religious fanatic. But I think I'm in good company. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. I think I'm in good company here. But I'll tell you why I think I'm in good company in Scripture. Paul, again, from Scripture, from the Bible, was an enthusiastic fan of Christ. When he was converted, he left a good job to become a preacher, to reach all kinds of people with the good news of Jesus. He gave up a prestigious position to become nobody. The Bible says, the scum of the world. That's what he became. He decided not to have a family, to to live a missionary life. He he suffered hunger, thirst, hot, cold, shipwreck, snake bites, stoning, unlawful imprisonment, slander, public whippings, and tradition says a martyr's death. For what? To win people for Christ. That's pretty fanatical, isn't it? The world out there, the world thinks it's strange. Maybe some of you this morning, if you, if you don't yet know Jesus, you might think it's uh, strange that our priorities, our goals, and our lifestyle are different, sometimes really different from the world. Worldly people, in quotes, we read in the Bible, are surprised that we do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on us. It's in 1 Peter 4, verse 4, by the way, if you want to check that. And that's, but the thing is, regardless of that, regardless of the abuse that we might get heaped upon us, that shouldn't dampen our enthusiasm. It should just remind us that Jesus was right when he said this. He said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about the builders of the cathedrals of old, all the amazing cathedrals we've got in our country. Uh, and and th- they're building something so massive. To, uh, you know, these, these early builders and these designers were building something so massive to honour God, knowing that they were never going to see it finished. And in fact, it would be their children's children who would see the final result. How bonkers to the modern mind is that? In our microwave mentality, where we want things uh, in, in the next two, three minutes, where a click of a button, we can have what we want ordered, we can have it within the hour. When a web page takes less than 1.6 seconds to download, we click back to reload it. How bonkers is it to think that you would start something, design something that you're not going to see the finished end result of, but actually it's your children's children that are going to see it. And the Holy Spirit's just downloading something now to say, look, we need to be sure we're leaving a legacy. And we need to be sure that we're at least part of or at least starting the work that needs to be done in the name of Jesus. So that down the line, our nation is indeed changed. Our world is indeed changed because of what we did, what we chose to do right now. Amen? There's one quote from one of those builders that I came across. It says, let us build here a church so great that those who come after us will think us mad to have ever dreamed of it. (laughs) That's cool. Um, If we're going to build great churches, and I don't necessarily mean buildings, folks, if we're going to build great churches, churches in our communities, our local communities, we need a bit of that mad dreaming. Uh, I said it at the beginning, didn't I? But we need to dream mad. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Every great and commanding movement in the annals of the world is a triumph of enthusiasm. Nothing great was ever accomplished without it. Someone else said, the worst bankruptcy in the world is the man who lost his enthusiasm. Zeal, that's what it is. This, this fanaticism is commanded and expected of Christ's followers. Like, like Phineas from the, the Old Testament, let's be zealous for God. The Bible says, 
And, and this, is, this, is, this is such the important difference between what I'm talking about and what the world now views as religious fanaticism. This is what Galatians 4 verse 18 said. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good and to be always so. I said it, top of the shop. Our, at the heart of our ideology is love and hope. You, you, you scratch the surface, you start to dig deep, you don't get anything. You, when you get to the bottom, when you get to that bedrock of our faith, of our ideology, it's love and hope. Yes. And that's what we're fanatical about. So when the world calls us fanatic, I would actually say we're committed Christians. Committed. So, this is number three. Forgive me, I'm going to probably be five minutes over. But it's so good you need to hear this. Three, courageous. These three warriors were courageous enough to obey at any cost. And you'll notice that in that verse, uh, verse 14 of 2 Samuel, it says this, The Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, and yet the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines. So the Philistines had established a garrison, and a garrison is a permanent military installation within the walls of Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem, you know that song you sing at Christmas, that, that place within the walls of Bethlehem. The very fact that they conquered the city of David in the first place suggests that the military power of the Philistine army was massive. But in spite of the danger, in spite of the consequences, these mighty men traveled around 12 miles, broke through enemy lines and came back with a jug of water. David's men were prepared to risk life and limb to please their king. They were ready to put their lives on the line in obedience to their Lord, all for a jug of water from a command that was never given, a desire that was just whispered in the dark. If only, if only, all for, I need to put this jug down, put it there. If only Christ's followers displayed that level of courage. And, and the, thing, the thing is, and this, this is what, where we go wrong, that, that, that we tend to equate courage with, with heroism. Uh, firefighters running into a burning building, soldiers preparing for battle, police arresting a criminal. And we might think of extreme sports like bungee jumping or uh, free climbing, activities that involve great risk. And so we think of courage actually as something that's balanced against the scale of risk. And we might think of courage as something extraordinary, something unusual, something that people are called upon to exhibit in only dangerous, life-threatening situations. And so most of the time, we don't think we need courage. We just don't see courage as an everyday necessity. But that point of view, I think, is mistaken. Courage isn't just for extreme situations. In fact, courage is basic to how we do life. The dictionary says that courage is a state or quality of mind or spirit that enables one to face danger, fear, or sudden changes in his life with self-possession, confidence, and resolution. And Mark Twain came out with the best quotes I've heard. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. Courage is required of God's people every day. It takes courage to be honest all the time. Think about why people lie. Why, why don't we just state the truth? Clearly and, and completely. And we lie sometimes because we fear the consequences of that honesty. But, that, but then we lie where we're fearful of being found out. And we lack the courage then to come clean. So we simply dig a deeper and deeper hole. 
rather than face the consequences and rather than just being honest in the first place. An unwillingness to share your faith can result from a fear of rejection. A refusal to serve others with their time and talents might come from a fear of being taken advantage of or being exploited. We stop giving because we fear these economic times in which we live. But courage is foundational to virtually every virtue. So much so that I think it's really impossible to mature in Christ without it. So let's say it's courageous to, 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 to serve and to use your skills and time and talents um, without that fear of being taken advantage of. It takes courage to share your faith even though you might be rejected. It takes courage to give financially when you don't have a lot. But it's impossible to mature in Christ without courage. It's impossible to live in obedience to Christ and have fellowship with him and please him as long as we're dominated by fear instead of courage. Being courageous is central to our daily lives as followers of Christ. Without courage, all the other virtues will be weak and easily compromised. They'll fade away at the slightest challenge. I read in a story, it said this, in a cross-country race, 123 of 128 runners missed a turn. Uh, one competitor stayed on this 10,000 metre course and began waving for the other, fo- other runners to, to follow him. But he was only able to convince four other uh, runners to go with him. Uh, and when asked what his competitors thought of his mid-race decision not to follow the crowd, he responded, they thought it was funny even though I went the right way. It takes courage to go the right way when everyone else is going the wrong way. It takes courage to keep going despite the laughter and the jeers of the crowd instead of just following the crowd. The Bible says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord my God is with you. He will not fail nor forsake you. J. Oswald Sanders, a prominent missionary in the 1950s and 60s, is credited for saying, Courage is that quality of mind which enables men to encounter danger or difficulty with firmness. The highest degree of courage is seen in the person who is most fearful but refuses to give in to it. When we have God with us, we can be strong and courageous, just like David's mighty men. So what do I want you to take away from my sermon this morning. What things would I like you to remember? It obviously took a special and skillful kind of person to serve as one of David's elite, one of his mighty men. Their loyalty and their bravery in service to the king of Israel, I think, is an awesome example for us to follow. Remember this then. They were close enough to hear the whispered words of their king. They were committed enough to take his word as their command. And they were courageous enough to obey at any cost. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Above all, what's really special about this story, I think, is how it ends. Let me read it. But he refused to drink it. That's the water. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. 
no matter what the Lord put in David's hand, no matter what it was, he would use it to honor God and help people. A sling, a sword, a harp, a scepter, even a cup of water. And this was no exception. When David looked into this cup or this jug, he didn't see water. He saw the blood of three men who'd risked their lives to satisfy his softly spoken desire. To actually drink that water then would demean his men and cheapen the brave deed of these three heroes. These heroes who'd blasted through enemy lines, who'd risked their lives, he pours it out in front of them because he wanted to honor them. And he poured out the water as a drink offering to God. So what seems a little odd, a little peculiar on the surface, when we look at it deeper and we recognize how devoted these warriors to David, an example of how devoted David was to God, we can begin to understand that a little better. Pouring out that water was an act of dedication that symbolized a life poured out in the service to God. So here's my invitation to you, to all of us. Are you willing to pour yourself out in service of our King? Christ would not ask anything of us that he has not done himself. Jesus paid the ultimate price and because of his sacrifice, salvation can be offered to us today. And I want to offer that to you this morning. If you're willing to draw close to our King, live a committed and courageous life for Jesus Christ then there's an offer today, an opportunity to enter into the service of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm looking around today, and there may be those amongst you who are ready to accept Jesus as your Savior and your King, to turn away from your sins, to all your bad stuff. There may be some among you who want to rededicate your lives to him, to redirect your walk back on a path that God has laid out for you. I'm going to say some words now, and you can say them inwardly, you can say them outwardly, and maybe that, as you say them outwardly, it's a reflection of your inward heart's desire. Jesus, I am sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Now please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. And I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be Lord of my life forever. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do... We make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone. And we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We our family and in this house that means we, we love, love.